Mac Power Users, episode 538. I predate the home computer with James Thompson. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hello, Stephen. I'm excited for today's show. Got an interesting guest. We do. It's going to be so much fun. I was looking back through the archives. We're planning guests and I was like, wait, this person hasn't been on. We should fix this. And so we uh, we are joined by the friend of the internet. I think I'm going to give him that title, Mr. James Thompson. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I was I was looking at it. It's like, yeah, it has taken 538 episodes for you to notice, but um, I'm here now. I feel now I feel really bad. I just want you to I, know that. I'm joking. That sounds like I've got a massive ego. Well, I do have a massive ego. But the funny thing is we've talked about you on the show. I mean, back the shows I did with Katie, we used to talk about you. I don't know. Maybe we just felt like you were unaccessible. You were like one of those people at the top with like two or three assistants and we'd never get through to you. I, I think I could not be further from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, James is the developer of PCalc, and uh, you've done a lot of stuff with Apple and as an independent developer over the years. And James, I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about some of your experiences. Well, um, hopefully I've got something interesting to say about it. Oh, I know you do. I know you do. The question is, will we get you to say it? <laughs> Look, I, I left Apple 20 years ago. I'm, I feel like the statute of limitations has passed on anything. So I like that. Me too. I like that. So, uh, James, I feel like we've known each other uh, a long time. We have a shared interest in technology history. We have a shared interest in Lego. We have a shared interest in nerdy things for nerdy things' sake. I feel like like we are just very much cut from the same cloth. But we want our listeners to get to know you a little bit. So give us a a little bit of of your background and maybe how you made it to be the full-time developer that you are now. I mean, I guess the sort of where to start is right at the beginning. I mean, it's like I'm old enough that I sort of predate the home computer. And uh, my first sort of real computer experiences were um, I had a next door neighbor who was uh, American from California. And he had an Apple II. And this would probably be very early 80s, probably 80, 81 or something. And I would go around there and I would play on the Apple II. And I would play all these, you know, like there was a game that I took, took me about 10 years to work out what it actually was, but it was a game called Mask of the Sun. And it was a sort of text adventure, you know, of the sort of go north pickup thing uh, type. And that was really sort of my formative computer experience. Uh, but then in 83, um, I got, uh, my own home computer, which was a, a Commodore 64. And in the UK, there were two rivals. There was the Commodore 64 and the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. There were really other computers, but they didn't count. Uh, it was th- <laughs> those two. And I chose the Commodore 64, not really knowing anything between like British and American uh, or anything, but I chose the Commodore 64 because it seemed to have a slightly better version of Pac-Man. I mean, this was like at the height of Pac-Man fever. Yeah. And I think I actually made the right choice because the, the Commodore had really nice graphics and sound. I mean, really nice graphics and sound for 1983. But it did have this thing called CompuNet, which was a UK only sort of 
uh, proprietary AOL-like online service. Uh, this was around 85 or something. And it had uh, MUDs, uh, which are multi, multi-user multi dungeons, so basically multiplayer text adventures. Yep. And it had uh, software uploads and downloads, and there was a sort of demo scene around it. And there were a lot of game developers that I'd become aware of. It took me a while to work out that all these things are actually created by people. And uh, there was a, a one developer called uh, Jeff Mentor who wrote all these games in the UK and is still writing games. And he's the reason, basically, that I learned to code because I wanted to write games like he wrote. And that was kind of like the start. And then things rolled out over time and it was like that our school was the first school in Scotland to get a computer, like one computer. Yeah. Uh, and this was in 1983, and this was uh, an Acorn BBC Model B computer, another British uh, specialty. And when it arrived in the school, the teachers had no idea what to do with it, because none of them, I think, had used a computer. So they put out a call to the students and said, and this was, I would be probably, a, let's see, 83, I'd be about 10 at the time. And they said, you know, does anyone have a computer and knows anything to do with this thing? And there were four of us that put up our hand and said, yes, you know, we we are clearly the experts here. (laughs) Um, So we were brought in and we ended up teaching the teachers how to use this computer and then teaching some of the kids in the lower years before school started. We had these like computer lessons that we ran and we actually ended up having an office like the four of us. And nice. Like, we, we were like school kids in a, and we had an office in the school. Nice. And we would sit in there and we would learn to program and we would listen to music and we would play video games. And that was pretty much the entirety of my last um, primary uh, school year, um, this primary seven. I know it's all different to your, your terms, but it was basically the seventh year of my school. Well, you know, back then it was interesting because people wanted to play games. I mean, I'm kind of the same generation as you, and it was command line computers. Commodore 64 was also in the United States. It was a great computer, but we didn't have a lot to work with. And also game developers really didn't have a lot to work with. So it was it was really kind of fun to see the different kinds of games that came out. And the one genre you keep talking about that you really don't see anymore is kind of the text adventure but that was something that was accessible to us, you know. Yeah, and we actually we wrote a text adventure ourselves. It was the first thing I, I really wrote as a as a as a program. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Everybody did that. If yes, go to twenty. Yeah, I got it. yeah. We were self teaching ourselves how to write this thing, and uh, it was the schools uh, were having a competition between all the different schools in the area, and we had to produce a sort of multimedia pack and multimedia in the sense of like uh, writing, drawings, whatever. And our, our group said, we're going to write like uh, a program to go into this pack because, you know, we're cool. And we wrote this text adventure and it was all based on the line, the witch in the wardrobe. So it was a sort of, I mean, it wasn't great. It was probably, you know, an ad a limited number of locations and things you could do. There were some graphics and things as well. But we wrote this thing and our school won the competition. And we were like, well, you know, clearly this was our, our game had pushed us over the edge uh, to, to win this. And 
at the uh, prize giving ceremony, the guy who who was running the competition, who worked for the libraries, um, he said there was also this tape uh, in with the pack, and I oh, put no. it in my I put it in my stereo, and it was just a bunch of high pitched noises. I don't know what that was. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So for for the younger listeners, uh, you used to use cassette tapes to record your programs too before there were discs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I went through all the, the sort of the various upgrades and, you know, I got a Commodore 128 and, and eventually I got myself an Atari computer because I was really into music and I was going to yeah. be this big shot musician and the Atari had all these MIDI ports. And, uh, I did actually, I recently found, uh, I was, the last trip we made before lockdown was to take stuff to the dump and, yeah went to the dump and up, unloaded all this stuff and there was a bunch of ele- dead electronics and things like that mm-hmm. and as i was turning to leave i could see a keyboard sticking out of a cardboard box and i looked at, and i thought oh, i wonder what kind of keyboard this is and then i looked at it further and i realized that it was the keyboard of an atari ste uh, which was the computer that i had back then wow and i lifted <laughs> it up and underneath the atari 5 520 there was an amiga 500 and both of these would like power supplies and mice and everything and i was like well i can't really leave this stuff here Mm-mm. no you can't and so you're not allowed to take stuff from the dumps here uh there's rules about that kind of thing so i'm sort of carrying this uh you know lots of computer parts and a guy comes up to me and he's like um what are you doing and i'm like these are vintage. I can't leave them. And he's like, ah, "Go on then." <laughs> so I have I have the two behind me, and the the Atari. I plugged it all in, and I find I still have one old TV. Uh, it's, it's a flat screen, but it, it still had an RF in, and I plugged the Atari into it, and it had a Tetris uh, floppy disk in it, and it booted up fine and works perfectly. The uh, Amiga doesn't boot, and I think it's a dead power supply. But I I just bought a replacement floppy drive emulator. So it's <laughs> it's a little box that fits a standard floppy drive of the time, but it's got a slot on the front for a USB stick and a sort of up-down. So you can load it up with like a thousand virtual floppy disks and then pick which one you want it to be. Uh, apparently these are for like generally for like musical instruments and there's all sorts of weird things that used floppy drives that they still want to work yeah but yeah i plan to kind of get these two things going again and you know it's it's a sickness i realized that i spent a significant portion of my childhood on an atari st and i remember i specifically remember when the 520 ste came out how jealous i was of everybody that got that computer because i had the older one yeah, And then at one point, I had taken my computer to a friend, and we literally soldered RAM on top of the RAM. Mm-hmm. You know, We just opened it up, and we got a bunch of RAM off of, out of the back of a um, 
magazine, I think. And you just soldered every pin on top of the other pin. And I doubled the memory and I thought I was just amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you didn't actually miss much because there was very little software that was written that took advantage of the, the STE bits. It was yeah. like the Commodore 128. You know, the only thing I ever ran on that really was Commodore 64 software. And occasionally there'd be some game that would run at twice the frame rate or, or something like that. But yeah. yeah, I think the STE was kind of the end of the Atari run. That was when they were kind of, kind of falling off but the uh, uh just for uh fun a few years ago i stumbled into some atari st a software that you could run on the mac to just kind of emulate it and it was really mm-hmm. kind of fun seeing the little busy b icon and the stuff that i in high school was such a big deal to me oh i mean that was the thing that i discovered because uh when i went to university i did a computing science degree from 1990 to 94 and the university was all Macs, um, or at least the computing science department was all Macs. The rest of the university was PCs, but the computing science at the time, at least, was fairly sensible about these things. And using a Mac for the first time, it was the sort of the realization that the the ST's gem user interface was just a you know a ripoff of, yeah, of, rip of, <laughs> of the Mac, and yeah. it was like going from this you know, second-rate clone, sorry, yes. Atari fans, um, <laughs> and finding what, you know, that like seeing what it had all been come, come from. And so one of my favorite courses that we did at university was a user interface design course. And what they did was they would spend an entire lesson going through like one small facet of the Mac UI and explaining why what choices had been made, you know, why would they have done things this way? And, you know, like, so spending a m- multiple hours on an open dialogue and like, why does the open dialogue, open save dialogue work like this? You know, why would you do it this way rather than this way? And that was my favorite course. And that's still why my favorite thing is user interface design. That seems like a very forward thinking program, you know, back in the early days of computing. Yeah, I mean, I don't, Strangely enough, I don't think of 1990 as the early days of computing, even though technically it might be 30 years ago. It feels like not a lot has changed, even though an awful lot has changed. But, you know, the stuff that I learned then about, you know, user testing and all that sort of stuff still 100% applies right now. And, you know, the user interface of a Mac is not that different to the user interface of a Mac 30 years ago. No, no. I mean, I think, I guess by 1990, I mean, the Mac had been out six years, but that's kind of the the starting to the turn of, they really were showing up in way more households, way more schools, right? It was becoming a deal where the computer just wasn't for some people, but almost anybody in an office was going to be doing stuff on a computer, right? Preparing you for the real world that you're going to experience once you were out of school. Yeah. And I mean, like around then was like, I started on system six, but system seven came out and that was really big deal. I remember sort of downloading uh, copies of that from Apple. And my first Mac was a a Mac classic that I bought around 1991. You know, I sold sold the Atari and all my synthesizers and I bought this Mac classic. And I, I say it was, you know, this huge loss to the music industry. (laughs) Um, that I I retired at that point. But, you know, having, I bought the Mac Classic because 
we were doing, you know, all our development on Max, uh, and we were using Turbo Pascal and Think Pascal at the time. So being able to do it from the house was, you know, uh, it meant I didn't have to hang around in the labs all the time. And also at the time, the educational discount was extremely significant uh, on Max. I think it was greater than fifty percent, is my guess. So, you know, I I bought a pretty high spec for the time mac classic it was the you know four meg of ram 40 meg hard disk and that was my main machine for for quite a while and that's where i started writing pcalc so you're the developer of pcalc you worked on pcalc starting back in what was it 92 yeah i i can't remember the exact time i started but it released in december 92 so i think i must have started it in summer of 92 yeah. And and before we move on, just one point about what Stephen was saying earlier is you really had to be there. The change from the command line to the graphical user interface, it really changed everything. I guess you could argue that the change from graphical user interface to the touch interface, the iPhone was a bigger deal. But looking back on my life, I think that the change from command line to graphical user interface made computers from the thing that four people in the whole school knew about to something that everybody used. It really made computers a thing when the GUI came out. Yeah. And the other thing about these times is like, this is pre-web, which is kind of a weird thing. Like, you know, I was reading Usenet and, you know, tidbits was I would get that through, you know, Usenet posts and and email and, and things like that. So there was like not the same kind of infrastructure and like software was typically distributed via FTP sites and mm-hmm. things like that. It feels in some ways like today, but also there's just so much has changed. Yeah, it, it's it's recognizable and unrecognizable. Hmm. I mean, you were talking about how the the Max UI is relatively the same, right? If you sort of back up from the desk and take your glasses off. It's like, yeah, it all kind of works the same way. And I think some people would say, well, you know, maybe desktop computers have slowed down and the future is other platforms. And some of that could be true, but I think it's true also. What a testament that that early work that was put in, like how good that work was, right? And how you can have something that is now decades old. The concepts are decades old, but it's still relevant today. Yeah, and, and I remember at the time the the sort of like using the Mac properly for the first time and the the just the sense of like this is something special, you know, this is this is different to everything I've used before. And that that's a kind of feeling that I've only had once since then, which was the first time I used an iPhone. And both of those I think are sort of really key moments in kind of like nailing a user interface. And I mean, the like the iPhone nailed it probably even more because, you know, it just landed and it worked and, ev- and you know, everything was there. And the Mac, you know, took a while to get to the stage when I first knew it. It's been interesting to be present at both of those events. Hmm. Yeah, and it, it is kind of like the eureka moment. I Like you, James, I spent a lot of time with fringe computers, Commodores, Ataris, and because the Mac was inaccessible to me. It was just too expensive, you know. Yeah, that was the thing. I only got a Mac because um, I worked uh, a, a long summer job and put all of my money, 
well, I put all of my money first into the ST and then I sold all of that and put it into the Mac. But yeah, I mean, it was not, I mean, even like the Commodore 64s, they were very expensive for the time. I mean, there multiple hundreds of pounds in the 80s, which was probably, you know, thousands of pounds now. Don't, yeah. don't quite, don't look up my math. I'm not actually sure that's true, but yeah. You could do it with PCALC, I'm sure. <laughs> I'll need to put in a historical uh, pricing uh, currency conversions. Well, you, you've got the uh, you've got the Hackett constant. You should have the Mac constant, which is the price of the original Macintosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's <Yes>. good. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, for me, I got to college and they had Macs in the computer lab, and that was it. I just started sleeping at the computer lab because I refused to go work on that crappy Atari computer when I had the real thing at school. <laughs> so it totally changed for me. Yeah, I get it, man. Yeah. And you. when I, uh, I graduated in 94, um, I was, uh, looking around to get a job and, you know, it was, I think it was a lot easier for software engineering graduates to get work back then. Um, and one of the companies that was really heavily looking for Mac programmers um, was Tetra Pak, who make the sort of like milk cartons and orange cartons and things, uh, because they were a company who uniquely and strangely ran their factory production uh, machinery with Macs. And this is not a very common thing to my knowledge. So they were looking for Mac programmers basically to uh, to maintain the software that ran the production lines. And I applied for a job there and I got through to the second round of interviews and a friend of mine from the same department, uh, he was like a week ahead of me in the interviews, he got a job. And so I was kind of pretty sure I was going to get a job. And then they worked out that they actually had no money and they, <laughs> no, no, nobody got jobs and I think they laid people off. Mm. But uh, my friend uh, got some severance package because he had been like employed for a day or something <laughs> and I got nothing. Uh, and while I was at the university, I was a student, uh, representative. So the kind of person that went to the meetings with the, you know, the staff and put forward the student's position on various things. And I would always be in there complaining about the way the servers were run. And like, so we had all these servers that had software on them for the Macs. And, you know, I would, I would complain about stuff. And uh, my punishment for the complaining was I was given the job of actually maintaining those servers. Uh, so I then had the students complaining at me about the way I was running things. But I was a, a <laughs> sysadmin and I looked after the, the, some of the Mac labs and some of the Unix machines for another two years after that point. That's probably great um, knowledge, though, working on all those Macs during that time. Yeah. I mean, it was like I was writing uh, sort of lab software by day uh, and, t you know, teaching myself more about how to program the Mac and, you know, working on my own stuff in the evenings uh, at home, uh, things like that. So it was kind of like a boot camp in, you know, learning how to do this stuff. And also, you know, being a Unix system administrator, turns out, was actually quite useful for running a Mac uh, however many years later. All right. Then where'd you go after that? So I feel I dine out a bit too much on these stories because I was only at Apple for less than four years. I joined uh, late 96 and I left uh, early 2000. But I think those years are kind of some of the most interesting years at Apple 
because you know I arrived uh, at Apple, and I should say the reason that I got a job at Apple was I put in the documentation of both pcalc and drag thing which we haven't mentioned which is my was my, was my application doc um and i put in the documentation that i wanted to work for apple and eventually somebody read that and reached out to me and said uh, do you want to come for an interview really <laughs> uh and this was uh at apple in cork in the south of ireland they had a small uh development group there who worked on you know not not necessarily the top tier of things but it, you know it was a group of about 50 engineers and 200 testers that were working on stuff cork was mainly a manufacturing plant like they made everything i think from apple twos through to imacs and things there i think at the start they actually did all the pcbs as well you know uh, so it was kind of sand went in one end of the factory and computers came out the other but <laughs> There was this small group that was attached to it. And it, you know, it was nice because it was within Europe. So it wasn't like a moving to Cupertino type of deal. I, I went over and I had an interview and I got the job. Uh, I, but when I arrived at Apple, you know, I just had this like uh, romantic notion in my head of wanting to work for Apple because I'd been like, since I used that Mac for the first time in 1990, I'd become the biggest Apple fanboy. Uh, and so I wanted to work for Apple, of course. And then when I arrived, it was like Copeland, the the, the next generation OS, the Mac OS 8 that never was, uh, was in the process of being cancelled. Uh, there was a lot of layoffs happening. Um, and Apple was actually close to bankruptcy. And I had no idea about any of this. And uh, my manager who hired me uh, left like a few months after I arrived and nobody replaced him and it was a really strange time and oh i'm i'm blanking on his name uh gil emilio uh mm-hmm. yes uh, was brought in to sort of uh right the ship uh, famously as a hatchet man and you know there was a very uh severe package of layoffs started happening and when people also left for other reasons they just weren't replaced so you know the episode of star trek the next generation when beverly crusher is on uh the enterprise and people start disappearing yes and and then like gradually it's like just a handful of people and then it's just her so that was pretty much how it felt at the time so so you were in an apple warp bubble is what you're telling us and uh (laughs) And I worked on the Copeland installer for two weeks. Um, Copeland had been cancelled, I think, at this point, but people were still working on it. People like refused to believe that it had, you know, because people had been working on this thing for years. Mm-hmm. And so there was a kind of like, well, you know, they're not really serious about it, you know, because we've put too much effort into this. Uh, and Copeland was the, you know, it was the preemptive multitasking replacement for mac os but based on mac os and nobody could comprehend the fact that you know all this work would be thrown away uh so I, yeah i was on the installer for a couple of weeks uh and some of that work probably not my work uh ended up in the 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 mac os 8 other mac os 8 uh, installer because uh, they looked fairly similar and it was just the the sort of the feeling of being on, you know, uh, uh, a company that is probably going to go out of business, mm-hmm. and then 
everything changing at such a, a rapid rate. Um, like I worked on two two projects. My first two projects were um, actually worked for Disney uh, because Apple wanted uh, software for the performance that were coming out, uh, and they. The, the way I tell the story, uh, which is kind of mostly made up, but it's that Apple uh, went to Disney and said, yeah, we would like you to uh, port the, your print studio products to the Mac and we'll give you like a million dollars. And uh, Disney comes to Apple uh, in Ireland and says, we'd like you to port these uh, print studios to the Mac and we'll give you $500,000. But it was something along those lines. And so we we took these print studios and we didn't use any of the source code and we re-implemented them. One was for 101 Dalmatians and the other one was for um, Hercules. Uh, and we Im- implemented them ourselves and filled them full of Easter eggs and dog cows and things that we weren't allowed to put in them. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Move. Yes. Uh, if, if you saved the document uh, with the name Moof! It replaced all the Dalmatians with Dalmatian cows. Um, <laughs> so I worked on that stuff and that was great. You know, it was a small team and it, it seemed pretty low stakes stuff. I mean, I've never written code that prints since then because it was so traumatic. Um, <laughs> just, just never write printing code because you've got to test it against so many devices. And we found we could, our, uh, the graphics we had to, we wrote a converter that converted from a Windows format into QuickDraw. And uh, so, because it was vector, basically we were doing sort of vectory things. Uh, and uh, we could crash the imaging engine on certain HP printers because we had some, slightly malformed code or uh, you know code in there and all sorts of things anyway we we did these print studios and you know it was great fun it was probably the most fun that i had on a project at apple uh because it was entirely kind of not under the not as a as a very visible thing i mean we we needed to hit some dates and and get it out there and working with disney was an interesting proposition at the time because you know we would work towards a gm and we would send them the gm and they would say you know that's great we've got a few more things that we need changed and we're like no i think you misunderstand the meaning of the word uh, golden master and that's it yeah so i worked on all this stuff and while this was going on we were kind of as a company we were pretty insulated um or cork was pretty insulated from the politics of the um the the mothership you know we would work on stuff and we'd be given scraps from the table to work on but on the other side of the planet things were happening and uh steve came back as a kind of advisor and then very quickly apple bought next but it did feel awful not like next bought apple because all of the the next uh, people were suddenly in charge of like software and hardware and all this and there was a massive culture war that went on between the two factions um and the best example of this that i can remember was by this point uh i i've skipped forward too much but uh i was working on the finder uh and the mac os 10 dock at the time because of the work i'd done on drag thing i think and I'd always wanted to work on the Finder, and I'd made that abundantly clear to anybody who who would listen to me. And 
there was a meeting when I was over there because I, I had to go over fairly frequently and I was in Cupertino and there was a meeting and it was basically the next people telling the finder people that we were going to, they were going to get rid of types and creators and they were going to move to file name extensions. And one memorable thing is one of the engineers stormed out of the meeting, came back in with beer and put a beer down in front of the next guy and then went and sat back down in his seat. And I will always remember that as a sort of just the defining moment of this uh, a clash of the different ways things worked. And I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the decisions have worked out well, you know, uh, without Mac OS X and without Next and with all that, I don't think we would be in the situation mm -hmm. that we're in now. No, sure. Uh, but at the time, it just felt like this alien culture coming in and, uh, you know, the, the people I worked with were people who had worked on the Finder since, you know, uh, the classic Finder days and, you know, the people whose names are in that secret about box. So we didn't really like the next people at first, um, but, you know, it all worked out well in the end. <laughs> That was a quick jump there. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I say it all worked out well in the end. I mean, I, not for me, uh, because uh, the, so what happened with me, uh, I was working on the Finder in the dock, and I didn't design the dock, I should say. Uh, like, they had, there's a whole human interface team that was coming up with the way things worked, and they were prototyping stuff in uh, Macromind Director and products like that. So, they would have like a, a mocked up user interface that sort of worked. And then they would turn around to engineers and they would say, now build this thing. Mm. Uh, so it was an interesting way of working because, you know, they might not have had, had the full concept of how things might work. So like, you know, if you're moving something, moving a file from one place to the other, that can take an indeterminate amount of time. You could be moving this on the slow network link, or you could be moving it on some fast thing. And so there were details that had to be sort of massaged between the, the ideal vision of this thing and what actually got built. But so I was working away on this and, uh, Steve Jobs was in talking to uh, the guy, Bass Ording, I can name him, who uh, was the designer of, of the doc. And Steve was saying to him, and Steve got on well with this guy. Uh, he'd been, there'd been a, a bidding war, I think, between the Kai's Power Tools people and Apple for this designer. And, uh, and this guy was, I think at the time, pretty young. I mean, I was extremely young at the time. I was in my early 20s. And Steve said, so how's it going? And uh, Bass goes, oh, you know, it's, it's going really well. Um, you know, the engineer uh, is over from, or the doc engineer is over from Ireland and, you know, we're making lots of good progress. And Steve goes, hmm, interesting. And the the story that I then had told to me by people who were in the room is Steve uh, flanked by, I think it was Avi Tavanian and various other people, goes to my boss's boss's boss. Wow, that's a lot of boss's bosses. And, uh, you know, effectively backs him up against a wall. And, and the line that I have heard, and I, I know that this is 100% uh, what was said, uh, and I apologize for the swearing, is, uh, 
it has come to my attention that the engineer working on the dock is in f-ing Ireland. <laughs> and the Mac OS X user interface was like a massive secret within Apple. You know, the, I, when I joined the project, I was told there was only six people um, who had seen it. The implication being that if it leaked, they would know who it was and, mm, you know, right. our fa- families would disappear. And, <laughs> and uh, so I was working on this big secret thing from outside of Cupertino and uh, Steve was not particularly happy about this. And so I was given an ultimatum to move to California, move to Cupertino uh, or else. I didn't really want to move to California or the States. You know, I liked being in Europe. I liked being part of Europe. Uh, yes, I did like being part of Europe. He notes. <laughs> and uh, what what happened was uh, I was given this ultimatum and I said no. And they thought about it for a while and they said, okay, we'll just tell Steve that you moved. And <laughs> this is where it gets good. <laughs> and I, I tell this many, this story many times, but it is true that I had a, I had a, an office on the finder team corridor and, you know, I had my name on the wall and it was a case of when there was meetings, I would get 24 hours notice to fly over. And, Jeez. you know, if there was a demo being done and I would be on the next plane, and I wasn't allowed to be in the room with Steve in case he said something to me like, you know, how are you finding California? And I would freeze and, you know, become clear or whatever. Um, and it was an extremely stressful time. And this went on for a year. And on my birthday, what happened was uh, uh, Mac OS X was finally unveiled to the public at Macworld in January 2000, I believe. Uh, or at least the Aqua user interface was. And I was like, finally, this sort of burden lifted from me that, you know, there were no more secrets. So everything was going to be okay. And a couple of weeks later, I got uh, another ultimatum uh, to move over or else. And the else in this term, at this point, I was told was I'd be taken off the dock and the finder team and I couldn't be guaranteed any interesting work ever again. And that was the quote. And um, I have to say, I, I told them what they could do with their job at that point. Uh, and I, I left because this was, you know, it was, a, it was an extremely stressful time. And also at this time, like I'd been working on drag thing at home because I'd got a deal when I joined Apple that I could uh, keep working on pre-existing products. And it, yeah, that, Apple would, that would never happen now, by the way. <laughs> no. And, and uh, you know, as it happened, I found when I left, I found like all the paperwork that I got when I joined, like all the NDAs and stuff like that. And I'd somehow never signed any of them. So that also uh, would never happen now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, but at that time, drag thing had become uh, shareware and people, it, you know, it was actually doing really well. And I was making more money from that than I was making from my Apple salary. Wow. So it was a point of like, it was a really easy thing to, to, to leave at that point because I knew I had the safety net and I moved back to Scotland uh, and moved to the place where I am currently living. Uh, and I, I've been indie ever since. But the thing that was interesting was 
three weeks after I resigned, they fired the entire remaining engineering group, which at that point was four people because we had come down from 50 to four. Uh, And what had actually been happening was they were planning to lay everybody off. And of course, I was working on this like high visibility thing and they didn't particularly want to uh, lay me off. So they gave me an ultimatum, not imagining that I would say no. So they couldn't, if they had come to me and said, we're secretly planning to lay everybody off, uh, so you need to move over, that would have been a a different proposition. Uh, I'm not sure I'd have gone either. But yeah, it was was like an incredibly stressful and interesting time. And like, I I missed out the whole thing that I was, before that, I was working on uh, some Rhapsody uh, Mac OS X server stuff. And that was an authentication server for a, this diskless workstation project that wasn't going to go anywhere called Columbus. Uh, alert readers will note that Columbus uh, is, in fact, the iMac. And mm-hmm. I didn't know I was working on the iMac for about a year because um, <laughs> we didn't know what an iMac was. And <laughs> and we, we, we were all packed into the Flint Center when the iMac was announced. I still have the T-shirts, or at least some of the T-shirts. And they announced it, and we were like, is that Columbus? Is that our project? No. <laughs> Especially when he said, and this is going to ship in 90 days. And, you know, it went from like, because we were working on this, it was a diskless workstation, you know, because diskless workstations were all the rage, you know, things mm-hmm. were going to net boot and, and all this. They even demoed that with Mac OS X server at some point, right? You could boot a whole classroom of machines off of one server if you wanted to. Yeah, and that was the plan, and that just didn't happen. Yeah, um, you know, Probably and good. so Columbus ended up having a uh, hard disk in it and not uh, having an Atty's authentication server. Um, so all of my work, uh, it should be pointed out that this is a, a theme for most of my time at Apple is none of my code ever shipped. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was such an up and down time, right? I mean, I was thinking about when you joined and all of this just all these products that went nowhere. And that really was Apple in the nineties, right? You had yeah. these OS and uh, projects that didn't go anywhere. These features that didn't go anywhere that changed vastly. And it's, it's no, I mean, it's no wonder to me that that was a, could be a traumatic place to work in that time. Yeah. And, and I think part of it was also because we weren't in, uh, we weren't in California. So we were like even more distant, and so things would happen, you know, be these seismic shifts and we would just find out when our manager was replaced with somebody else or, or, you know, something happened. And we ended up, we had like two managers, which is a great thing to have if you're an employee. You know, we had a, uh, we had local managers in Cork and we had managers in Cupertino mm-hmm. and they might tell us conflicting things. And yeah. also our managers local in Cork weren't, didn't have the security clearance to know what we were working on. What a nightmare. Well, let's yeah. uh, let's shift gears a little bit and uh, talk about kind of your uh, more modern times after this break. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Go to SaneBox.com slash MPU and stop drowning in email. SaneBox is an email service that's kind of awesome. It learns what email is important to you and filters out what isn't, saving you hours. Imagine if you hired someone to preview your email for you and just give you the important stuff. That's what SaneBox does. And it works with all kinds of email programs and services, so you don't have to have a specialized application to do it. 
There are a bunch of ways SaneBox does email filtering. The Sane Later folder keeps your inbox to only what really matters. The Sane Black Hole is like an unsubscription with one click. Or you can snooze an email that defers it till the next business day or the weekend or whenever you want. One of my favorite features of SaneBox is Sane Reminders. If you carbon copy or blind copy an email to one week or one day or five hours at SaneBox.com and you don't receive a reply in that time, you'll get a reminder. This is a great way to make sure you follow up on email. But SaneBox is more than just filtering. You can move attachments to Dropbox or other cloud services, and they've got various pricing plans starting as low as $4 a month. So get your 14-day free trial today. Go to SaneBox.com MPU, and you receive a $25 credit on any plan. I pushed for that $25 credit because I want MPU listeners to try this service I've been a subscriber for years, and I really dig it. That's SaneBox.com slash MPU and receive that $25 credit on any plan. Thanks, SaneBox, for sponsoring the Mac Power users. So, James, are you still rocking that Atari 520 STE, or or what's your current hardware? Well, um, there is an Atari 520 STE sitting, you know, about, I can touch it, uh, but... That is not the same one that I owned, I don't think. I mean, who knows? It could have had quite the journey and come back to me, like yeah. some kind of uh, <laughs> missing pet. Uh, yeah, my my gear at the moment, so my main machine that I'm speaking to you on now uh, is an iMac Pro. And I would say it's the best Mac I've ever owned, full stop. And it's like a lovely screen. It's fast. It's small. It's silent. And, you know, it would be nice if it had an upgrade in the last couple of years, but you know, it is a nice machine and it cost far too much money uh, for, for what it is. But you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a Syracuse and buy an actual Mac pro. Uh, the, the other thing that I have uh, sitting next to me is I have a MacBook pro 13 inch 2020, one of the new ones. I missed out on the entire butterfly era you know, I came from a 13-inch 2015 machine. Uh, so it's nice to have like that five years of improvements. Yeah, I bet. What, what did you notice first when you went uh, from a five-year-old Mac to a, a new one? Um, <sighs> I needed lots of adapters and dongles. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll I mean, give you that. No, I, I think the first thing that I actually noticed was the screen resolution was higher because I always ran my screen at, you know, not the native resolution because I wanted just slightly more uh, screen real estate. And I didn't need to do that. And that was the first thing I noticed. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that they had, like, in the intervening years, uh, had improved that. The thing is, because I, like, I basically uh, came from a clone of my old machine, initially things didn't seem that much different. But it's just, you notice things are faster, you know, networking is faster, it's uh, more seems to be more reliable than the Bluetooth uh, stakes, things like that. Um, uh, you know, the battery lasts longer. It, I mean, it doesn't really feel like five years of, of like five years in iPhones feels mm-hmm. like a lot more than five years in MacBooks. But sure. uh, it's a it's a nice machine, and and you know, I miss the fact that the Apple doesn't glow. I think that's my main sadness with it. It is a bummer. Also, like uh, cough, cough, Intel, <laughs> right? I mean, you're yeah. you're you're right. We talk about this on the show all the time. How. People can run Macs from 2013, 2014, like to- even longer, 
totally fine. And very often a machine will be dropped from the newest version of Mac OS before it's like not usable in terms of specs. It's absolutely wild. Yeah, I mean, my 2015 machine is going to go to my father um, as soon as I can actually get his machine and, and update it. Um, and uh, it's going to be an upgrade for him. And, you know, that that 2015 machine is, an, is a nice machine. One thing I do when I buy my laptops is I spec them to the highest CPUs um, that I can get. And that gives them like that extra year or two of um, life, I think, just in terms of, you know, the... the it's a comparable processor. I mean, like I did the benchmarks on the two machines and, you know, because this thing has got uh, two more uh, CPU cores, it's it's a lot faster in multi-core stuff. But, you know, is it that much faster in single-core stuff? Yes, but not, you know, it's like it's in single-core, it's actually faster than my iMac Pro. But, you know, the, the difference is when you're measuring these things, it's not like, you know, it's 10 times faster or five times faster. It might be twice as fast or, right. or something like that. Yeah, and that that's not the first thing you notice. Like when I asked, would you notice it? You didn't say, oh, it's way faster because it, they probably aren't way faster. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's faster, but it, and there's certainly, you know, the, the graph, the GPU is a lot better and things like that. I mean, it doesn't have the discrete GPU like the 16-inch, uh, which is something I miss. But um, given how small it is, you know, it, it already seems to have a tendency to turn the fans on when you stress it. So... Mm-hmm. I don't think they could cram very much more in that old uh, design. I have uh, an iPhone 11 Pro, the, the the small one, and you know I said about the the iMac Pro being the the best uh, I'm the best Mac I've had. You know, this is the best iPhone I've had. It's mm-hmm. really nice. Um, I alternate between the big ones and the small ones just to have some different experiences, but. I, I love that thing. Let's talk about that for a second, because a lot of listeners always are torn. You know, do you the small one or the large one? Having used both, what are the big trade-offs in your mind? I mean, I think there's like there's trade-offs like um, when I keep it in my trousers, do my trousers have a tendency to fall downwards? Um, you know, <laughs> okay. that, that is that is a consideration that I had in mind. So, so every other year you wear suspenders. Okay, I got that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will point out to UK listeners that suspenders does not mean what you think it means. Okay. Um, <laughs> I get I get in so much trouble with words like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, suspenders is like stockings and garters and stuff like that. So uh, well, then, anyway. then we were talking about the same thing. Hey, yo. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, I, you know, I like having the larger screen and seeing seeing more i mean as i was saying about liking the more screen real estate on on the the mac pro uh, on the macbook pro and part of it is also um my wife hates the the big ones and so every year she gets the hand me down from when i get a new phone she gets that one so i wanted next year for her to get a, a small phone but you know that this it used to be that you know you only got the the better cameras on the big one, and now everything's pretty much the same apart from the screen size. Uh, so there's not as much to choose between them. And I did spend like forty five minutes in an Apple store, like picking them both up and looking at them. And it's like, do I want this one? Do I want this one? Yeah. Um, so I think it's a difficult decision. Yeah, for me, the the Max just was too big, and and with. This one, I'm I'm back on sort of the smaller size. And the rumors are that all of them are going to get bigger again. 
which I don't I don't love, but it is nice to have options for so long as like this is the size iPhone you get, right? I mean, at least we weren't the people who were sort of clinging to the SE screen right. size. Yeah, those um, people are, are still sad. Yes. Um uh I've got uh I've also got an iPad Pro 10.5 inch with a bridge keyboard on it. And you know, if I'm honest, like the iPad tends to fall in between the phone and the laptop. I don't use it as much. It's mostly a test device uh, when I'm doing development. But when I have the bridge keyboard on it and I have that on it all the time, it's kind of an ultra portable if I'm sort of going out or, you know, going on vacation, if you remember vacations. You know, it's a nice small device that I could take around. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time that I was running Hackintosh Dell Mini 9. Uh, oh, yeah. If you remember sure. them about 10 it. years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I I hacked that and I took that around Japan when I went uh, on a vacation there for two weeks. The, those mini those mini Macs were so popular for a very short period of time and then you never heard from them again. I think that's something that got wiped out by the iPad. Yeah, I mean, I think it was also the fact that it became quite hard to do OS updates yeah. and things. Yeah. And it was starting to get into an era when security updates were actually really important and things you wanted to install. Uh, so, you know, you you would always be lagging behind and waiting for some uh, people in the Hackintosh community to get those things going. And I, I've never really thought about going down the Hackintosh route these days, even though I know there are people that do it because the, Apple doesn't make the perfect machine for them. But yeah, that that iPad. Uh, I mean, I like it, but I haven't, I haven't felt the need to to upgrade it to the the latest models. I mean, I would like them, obviously, but you know, uh, I spent a lot of money on this iMac Pro, and yeah. I kind of like the the MacBook Pro wasn't cheap either, so mm-hmm. I, it's difficult to justify. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always like a, a thing of like, you want to have the latest hardware because you're doing development and you want to be able to support the latest hardware as much as you can. But buying new hardware every year gets really expensive. And, you know, for a, a lone indie developer, well, I say lone, it's myself and my wife who, who run the company. But, you know, for just the two of us, spending, you know, many, many thousands per year is, is uh, difficult. Although this year we're not spending the tens of, well, you know, at least probably about $10,000 to do the WWDC trip, all told. So uh, that that means I can get my, my shiny new uh, MacBook Pro and uh, still have some money left over. What do you think about that? Um, are you, uh, what, what are your thoughts about WWDC becoming a virtual event? Well, so it's difficult because WWDC is always a very exclusive, exclusive event you know only five thousand people get to go to it and you know it's a lottery it's a sort of somewhat of a loaded lottery i think at times but you know there's so many thousand people or or tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of developers around the world don't get to go to it but i really liked going to it and i liked not so much you know the, the sessions are are fine uh but that's not why you go to WWDC. You know, you can watch those sessions, you can live stream them. You know, they've, they've been live streaming sessions uh, and putting up uh, records of them for years. Uh, so that much is not really changing. What I did like about WWDC and the, what was worth the price of the ticket was going to the labs or talking to engineers who after the WWDC sessions and 
especially the sort of the networking and the talking to other people in the community. I mean, mm. that's a, that's a huge thing that's going to be missed by me. Is like I don't get to see you see you guys this year. You know, there's not going to be the 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 relay live recordings of something, right? And you know, we all hang out and and I'm going to miss that dreadfully. So that's the thing that Apple can't reproduce, you know, no matter what they do. Uh, you know, we can talk to each other over microphones like we're doing now, but it's not really the same thing. But as I say, you know, it's the kind of the, that's in some way a kind of elitist attitude to WWDC, you know, like I'm sad because I'm not getting to hang out with my friends, but if Apple can improve what they're doing to make the the online experience for the vast majority of developers who wouldn't be at WWDC anyway, then that's a big win for for everyone. You know, if they can do some kind of, you know, more uh, interactive stuff with people asking questions or I don't know what they're going to do. And mm-hmm. I'm sure Apple are still figuring some of that stuff out. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, extremely curious to see what it's going to be i mean it's it's not like we're going to have uh you know uh a campus bash or you know the the a band or or any of that stuff you know we're not going to have the you know students running around trying to collect the most pins the the things that i remember from the last wwdc when i was there it's all that sort of the it's those interactions. And it's also like, it's nice to meet like fellow developers and, and make these connections with them. And we talk to each other on Twitter all the time, but it's not the same as, I mean, I imagine it's the same f- for you guys. It's like, you know, you know us like in the developer world and, you know, we talk to each other, but it's not the same as sort of hanging out. So yeah, I've kind of like I've gone back and forward on that point, but yeah, I think it's going to be a good thing overall for the for the developer community because it's going to make things better for the vast majority of people, but I am sad personally for missing out on meeting folk. Yeah, I've got so much more insight about Apple talking to Apple engineers at bars than I've ever got from a keynote. Absolutely. I mean there's there's, there's so many times that I've ended up at some like after party of some event and you're talking to somebody and then it turns out, oh, they're on App Store editorial. Hmm, that's interesting, <laughs> you know. And uh, there's there's like, I, I mean, there was a, this is going way back to like 2001, I think. Um, back then, Apple had uh, uh, an international reception for international developers and uh, Phil Schiller was there at it. And, you know, I sat and talked to Phil. They they stopped doing this, like, many years ago. But, you know, I talked to Phil for quite a while. And I, I like, explained who I was, you know, and gave him a business card and, and all that. And uh, and it was off the back of that that PCALC got bundled with the Anglepoise uh, IMAX. And that was purely because of that interaction that I had, you know, that I, I got to talk to an Apple VP for like five, 10 minutes and, uh, and one who didn't put two and two together that I was a previous Apple employee, but beside, beside that. Um, and it was, the other thing with WWDC is like also, you know, in recent years, there's all these other events that have sprung up around it. You know, there's WWDC, but it's still worth going 
out there, even if you don't have a ticket. You know, there's um, AltConf, there's Layers, there's all these other conferences, and there's all the events. And, you know, I mentioned the Relay Live things and, you know, the ATP and all these all these shows, which are, you know, you know, you think it's good listening to podcasts, uh, even on a live stream. You know, actually being in the room with people, there's just uh, a different energy about it. There's, I think there's going to be a bit of a hole. And my kind of fear is that at some point Apple is going to say, you know what, this worked so much better than actually spending all the time to do the conferences and, you know, fi- flying 5,000 people and having 2,000 of our engineers meet up from around the world and mix. Maybe that's not a good idea anymore. You know, maybe we should never have conferences again. And I think that's at least a possibility. We don't know exactly where we're going over the next, you know, couple of years in terms of these things. So we could have seen that the end of it, um, the end of the old WWDC. But as I say, uh, if it makes it better for the vast majority of other developers and kind of levels the playing field, uh, I think that's that's a good thing. Agreed. So let's talk about pCalc. This is an application you've been working on for how many years now? Was it it's in 92 that you started it? Yeah, I think it was the summer of 1992. And uh, so pCalc wasn't a calculator originally. <laughs> it's called pCalc. <laughs> yeah, okay. So where it came from was um, the, I mentioned this user interface uh, class that I did. One yeah. of the projects that we had for that was to design a, a central heating controller, you know, like the kind of thing that would be on your wall, you know, so you can set the temperature, you know, switch programs, that kind of thing. You know, back in the days before, there was like Google-connected devices that were running all your heating. And we were doing this in HyperCard, so we had to build this like uh, fake uh, central heating controller in HyperCard and wire everything up and make it work. And... Because I overdo things all the time, I made this fake uh, seven-segment LCD graphics uh, <laughs> and and these little buttons and things, you know, to make it look as much as I could on a on a one-bit uh, Mac screen, look like a real uh, central heating controller. And uh, later on, uh, we had been doing some programming using Think Pascal, as I said, and. We started doing some stuff with QuickDraw, you know, like you could do things in Think Pascal where as soon as you used any QuickDraw commands, it would bring up a window and it would do all the infrastructure behind that. So you could like sort of draw a circle or anything like that. And I realized looking at this stuff that as part of this Think Pascal, we had all the the Mac development uh, stuff with it too. So, you know, I could write an actual app and I thought, oh, this you know, I would like to be able to do this. I I've, I can write code to a certain extent. So let's see if I can learn how to program a Macintosh. And I was trying to come up with a small project just to start, you know, do for a couple of months to, to learn how to do it. And the Mac at the time shipped with this uh, very basic calculator, which didn't change until even after the the first releases of Mac OS X, it was still this very basic uh, mm-hmm. calculator. And we were doing stuff with uh, hex and binary as part of our courses, and I wanted to write a, a calculator that could do uh, programming stuff as well. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, okay, this is a good thing. I've got this uh, 
this seven segment LCD font for a better word. And I've got this bu- these button graphics that I've drawn. I could put that together and I could wire up some logic behind it and I could make a calculator and that would be a good like sample test project that I would, you know, do once and never think about again. And I worked on that over the summer and I had, you know, a bunch of my friends as beta testers for it. And I thought, well, you know, it's got to the point where it's pretty usable. And I had people around the world looking at it. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll ship it to the world. And I, it was free. And I uploaded it, uh, I think it was like 23rd of December in 1992. And you can go back and you can look at the Compsys Mac Digest for a post uh, on the 23rd of December. And you'll see my my original uh, PCALC post. And the thing was uh, that... I didn't work on it again for a while and I, I went on and I worked on drag thing. But PCALC was always, it was this small piece of code. And whenever I was trying to learn something new, it was a good test project. So like when I was learning about uh, Code Warrior's PowerPlant uh, user interface framework, which is kind of like the sort of app kit of the day. So you build, you could build the interface in a graphical environment and then wire it up. And anyway, so I built, rebuilt PCALC in that, uh, and that was PCALC 2.0. Uh, PCALC 3.0 was me learning about the HI toolbox, which was the more modern Mac APIs that came along after that. Uh, and when it came time for the iPhone, it was like, well, this is another good uh, test project. You know, I'll make a version of PCALC, I'll port it over to the iPhone because I had a very portable version of the brain of PCALC, which I'd written for the dashboard widget version uh, of PCALC back in for uh, whenever dashboard came along. Yeah, yeah, Tiger maybe? Yeah, somewhere. Yes, Tiger. I'm looking at your history page. Yeah, Tiger. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for doing the research. Uh, And... uh, so I had this code that, that wasn't really connected to the rest of the Mac APIs, and it was more just a brain that I could drop in. Uh, and I ported that to the Mac within, you know, like half an hour because, uh, sorry, ported that to the iPhone SDK in like half an hour. And uh, then it was a case of like, can I wire up some buttons, you know, like put a button on the screen, put two buttons on the screen. Uh, put a text field up and see if I can push the button, send a message down to the engine, get a response back, display that on the screen. I was like, yeah, yeah, this this works. So I could build a calculator. And so I got PCALC running uh, for the day one of the App Store. And for day one of the App Store, there were 400 apps. Uh, and I think PCALC was the only calculator. And it did remarkably well, uh, way more than I was expecting. And it was making like actual money and way more money than DragThing was making by this point because DragThing had kind of tailed off. And so my efforts kind of went into the iOS version uh, a lot because I was, you know, I, I've got to make the money to to eat. So, you know, it's yeah, like sure. people are buying this. So <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to spend my time there. And it was kind of like as DragThing was on the way down, uh, PCALC particularly on the iPhone was on the way up. And at some point I realized uh, that I was 
you know, the iOS version was like the lead platform and the Mac version was kind of the port. Mm. Uh, and it actually came the PCALC 4. So I learned UIKit before I learned AppKit because I was like a classic uh, Mac OS toolbox uh, person. And I AppKit was like, as I discussed, was the next. It was the enemy. It was the... Yeah. Uh, and like the Finder was written using uh, PowerPlant. Uh, it wasn't written using AppKit. And it was supposed to be a kind of, that was the part of the thinking was to demonstrate Apple's commitment to carbon. Well, look what happened there. Uh, but anyway, the um, so I didn't know AppKit, but I, di I wanted to do uh, a, a modern version of uh, PCALC on, on the Mac. And I took the iOS code and I ported the iOS code to the Mac. And this is years before Catalyst. Uh, so the current Mac version is actually the iOS code. And it's the iOS code frozen at a moment in time, which is why it doesn't have some of the features from the, the, the iOS version, like layout editing. And I've you know, I'm keeping it up to date and I'm not, you know, it's not like uh, languishing, but uh, it's just interesting that like the the iOS code is now everywhere. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, if you look at it, it's really, it's the dashboard widget code is now everywhere. <laughs> so you, you over the years have developed a little bit of a reputation for adopting things early. So I was going to run through a list here. You had uh, a widget in iOS 8 that included a calculator. Uh, Apple then asked you to remove it, and it kind of blew up into this whole thing, uh, which was like back and forth for a while. You, of course, are on the Apple Watch, but also the Apple TV. You have a tvOS version that you can control with a game controller because yep. reasons. And then, of course, there's this delightful, as uh, Mac Stories calls it, a delightfully insane about screen where you took a bunch of stuff about AR kit and metal and all these technologies really designed for things that aren't calculators and slammed them into your calculator app. And I, I wonder what's the thinking behind doing these extra things in the app that seem to be not necessary for a calculator, but definitely make the app more fun. So um, I talked about PCALC as being a thing that I used to learn. And that's always true. And one of the things that was clear a few years ago uh, was that Apple was looking into AR stuff and they were investing more heavily into AR than seemed to be justified for what they were doing with AR. So, you know, the, the, the smart money was on Apple possibly working on some kind of AR hardware down the line. And that's a rumor that persists i mean we know it's more than a rumor but you know what ships who knows but uh so i was like yeah this could be the next sort of iphone in terms of impact and i would like to learn about this stuff so i'd done some 3d programming back in my computing science days you know working on sun workstations with RenderMan and things like that but i hadn't done any 3d stuff since then I was like, okay, so Apple has a 3D library scene kit and they have AR kit, which is built on top of scene kit and can work with other 3D engines. But, you know, that's what Apple is using for stuff. So this is, should be something that I should look into. And I just started messing around with 3D code. And, you know, I, I started and it's like, I was basically working my way through all the APIs in scene kit. And like, you know, you work down and it's like, Oh, there's a physics engine. 
that's interesting. So I can create 3D objects and then assign, you know, mass to them and, you know, they will, you know, there's gravity and they will fall and they will behave realistically. And it's like, well, let's experiment with that. And that was where I ended up with like the logo for uh, the icon for Peacock and you could throw bananas at it or mm-hmm. whatever. And I worked my way further down the, the list of things and it's like, oh, there's a vehicle API. Well, that seems interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's try putting a little vehicle in. And, uh, you know, I I made like a little car that you could drive around and uh, I, as I said before, I'd always wanted to write games and I'd never really succeeded in any writing of games. Uh, but I I took this car and I could drive this car around on a little flat plane and I made a, a sort of triangular ramp. You know, it was a very simple like 3D object that I, I made in uh, Blender and I, I put it into the environment and I gave it like a, a physics uh uh, object associated with it and i drove my car at that ramp and the car like jumped into the air and did this sort of like you know slow motion you know like 80s tv show jump and then landed and i was like this is the coolest thing i have ever written and uh and it that kind of spiraled from there part of the background to this is also I have something of an obsession about secret about boxes and about screens. And uh, I would direct people to uh, a talk that I did at uh, NS North and at... Uh, Swift Live? Swift uh, Hacking with Swift Live. Yeah. That's it. Sorry, Paul. I do remember. Um, and uh, so I part of my obsession about about boxes is I always wanted to be in the finder secret about box ever since I first found it in like, you know, 1991. Mm-hmm. And I eventually, I wrote the Mac OS X Finder secret about box. And I put my own name in it, added my name to that list of scrolling credits that goes back to the Lisa. And the next week, I checked the code in, and the next week Steve ordered all uh, credits to be removed from the operating system. <laughs> and that- You were there for has, a week. <laughs> that- you know, and it it shipped out in one build internally, and that was it. I had success in my grasp, and then it was taken away. So I ha- always had that, I'm going to make a secret about box. I'm going to put my own yeah. name in it, and it's going to be the best secret about yeah. box. Take that, that has Steve Jobs, is what you're saying. Yes. That that was, spite is something that powers me through many, um, <laughs> uh, many things. <laughs> the other thing is, I mean, if you look at the timing, I was working, I, I mean, I was learning a lot from this and, uh, and you know, it's, it's been interesting work and, uh, and it has paid off in various ways. But this was also like 1996 that I was working on this stuff. And, you know, shall we say the political landscape in both the UK and the US was shifting dramatically around about 96. And I needed an outlet that I could put my creativity into and I could, you know, as a as a effectively a mental health thing um and so this was not a great time but i could like i could concentrate on this thing and i could make this thing and nobody was telling me that i couldn't make this thing so i you know i was doing it and and it was a, a nicely sort of interactive thing because like i was posting videos as i was doing things and like um i had the like I added uh, game center support and leaderboards and mm-hmm. things uh, and like 
challenges and that, and one Mike Hurley was the 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 reigning champion um for the the first level of the game uh to the point where I sent him a trophy a physical trophy and you know it, it was an it was a nice little escape and it was a thing that I did um and uh one of the things that was a kind of a spin off of that was I I'd learned all this 3D code and I did my dice by peacock app which is my uh uh dungeons and dragons dice rolling app uh, uh and that was i gave myself a challenge because as as people might know i've not done many apps in my career you know like of the stuff that actually shipped uh leaving aside all the apple stuff that didn't uh there's like peacock and drag thing are the two main things that actually shipped uh so i gave myself a challenge which was to write a new app in a week a week from pressing new project in Xcode to uh, shipping it on the App Store. James, I, James, I just have one question. I mean, yes. for us old folk, how come there isn't a text adventure in your About box? Well, it's funny that you say that oh, no. because there is. <laughs> there is? <laughs> so it's not shipped. So the About screen has level one, which is the driving the car around a little small enclosed bit with jumping the car through hoops and stuff then there is like there's a golden banana at the side of the, this just it's a fairly featureless box and if you drive at the golden banana you hit the wall and you actually break through the wall like uh, the scene in tron where the light cycles escape the grid <laughs> uh which was entirely my inspiration and the bricks go flying and you're actually you're on a bridge and it takes you to a small city which you can drive around in there's a helicopter there's a whole bunch of stuff what? you can fly the helicopter and beyond that um there's a tunnel uh right at the edge of the world there's a small tunnel and above it there's a, there was a sign that said level 3 question mark and you drive into that and in a version which has never shipped you drove into that, and then it would start a text adventure where basically you would trans uh, transition from you know the thing, and then it would say you know you are in a tunnel, you know you are standing next to a car, blah blah blah. There you know there's a golden banana next to you, and then it took you into this thing, and I prototyped it out to like sort of four or five rooms that you could walk through. Uh, the the problem was I was using uh, there's a, a a uh, text adventure creation tool, a modern one called Inform. Uh, I think it's Inform. Um, double check that. But to get the, the th you could build a, a text adventure that basically could run in a, in a web view. And that was fine. But I couldn't get, what I wanted was the, be able to affect state from one to the other. So you could go into this text adventure, you could change things, and then you'd come back out to the 3D world and stuff would have changed. And I never figured out a good way of doing that. And then it was pointed out to me that perhaps I was spending a little bit too much time working on this thing and not actually working on my product. Um, <laughs> I will not say who pointed this out. Mm. Um, but uh, so I decided to mothball that for some future thing. But one you, day- You must ship it. You must ship it. That's all I'm going to say. A lot of people know <laughs> about it now that you said it. So you got to do it. I I, I will one day perhaps ship it. I, I wrote some good tech 
uh, copy for the, the the text in that, and I was quite happy with it. Uh, but yes, we'll, we'll see one day. Mm-hmm. But the, the spinoff of that was I had all the 3D knowledge, and I challenged myself to do this new project from scratch. And in fact, it was one Jason Snell who challenged me to do it. He may not have said, and then spend best part of the next 10 months working on it as well. But anyway, so because I was doing uh, Total Party Kill, uh, the UK variant at the time, I was trying to get it ready for that when we were doing that. And uh, and it, it's uh, I shipped it within two weeks, which for an engineering estimate is pretty good. And, uh, you know, it's my it's now become my new about screen and it's the thing that I tinker with. You know, if I if I'm doing if I'm needing an escape, I can, you know, come up with a new set of dice or, you know, add some silly feature to it or whatever. Uh, But the difference between it and the about screen is that it actually sells for money and people buy it. Uh, So it it probably is not uh, financially a wise investment. Uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons I added a tip jar to it in the version that came out last week. Uh, But it's, you know, it's at least making some money. And uh, I, I, I have somewhere to put some uh, creative energies uh, that are not strictly calculator related. I just love that, you know, you put all this effort into the about box, but PCALC is also just a remarkable calculator. And Apple, for whatever reason, doesn't spend the effort and time that you have building a calculator for their devices. So it's great that you were there in day one, but you've always really been, if not one of the best, the best um, calculators available for iPhone and, and iPad. I think there are, you know, there are other calculators and they all have strengths and they all have different weaknesses. And, you know, PCALC works very well as a kind of an old school calculator, you know, the kind of thing that uh, people would have paid hundreds of dollars for 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Um, and uh, there there seems to be a place for that still. And uh, I'm very glad that there is. Uh, and I, I like using it as a way, you know, like I, we were talking, I did an Apple Watch version of it. And like the Apple Watch is an interesting thing to program for because it's a, a constrained uh, environment. And that's a fun thing is like trying to make something run, you know, where you don't have infinite amounts of memory or processor speed or GPU power or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, like I got the, I got part of the PCALC about screen running inside Siri. So that was, you know, there's things like that. It, I like those challenges. Um, and, you know, the original iPhone was also that kind of a challenge was like, if you're writing something on an iMac Pro, you can pretty much write anything. <laughs> And even if your code is not great, it will run. But if you're working on on a, on a like a, especially an original Apple Watch, and you're trying to get stuff running, it challenges you to to do things. And I think that's what I like. I like the challenge. Well, I think it pays off because PCALC, like David said, is not only is it an incredible calculator, but you have created a, a fan base for an app that really shouldn't have one. Like, no offense, but like. None taken at all. You know, calculators are are tools, but you've created Peacock. You've given it this personality that people resonate with, right? I mean, the fact that you put leaderboards in there, people were racing each other. And, you know, I was so angry that I couldn't catch up with Mike on the racing. Like, all of that stuff, I think it goes to build the brand around Peacock. And I think it's 
I think it's phenomenal. I think a lot of developers could learn from your experimentation and your your sort of sidetracks into these different things. I've been very lucky. I think there's a certain amount of effort, yes, but I think there's also been a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time. You know, it, because if I was coming to the app store now today, I don't know that I could have that same impact. And in some ways, it's actually quite scary to hear people say, you know, lots of, you know, developers look up to you or something. And it's like, wow, okay, now this is pressure because like, if people say, you know, how do, how do I do what you do? And it's like, I don't know. I don't have, I've kind of just lucked into a lot of things. The basic things of trying to put your personality into something I think is useful. And uh, I mean, like, with, it's very hard to get noticed on the app store. You know, like there were 400 apps and there's now, you know, what, somewhere between two and three million, maybe more than that. So by doing the the stuff with like silly things with about screens or, you know, selling t-shirts or whatever my uh, craziness of, of the, the season is, uh, that actually helps in terms of, you know, people might not use my product, but they might have heard of me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe the next time if they're thinking about buying something, they will have heard somebody talk about Peacock or, you know, I tend to turn up in strange places and, you know, it's like the the stuff with the Hackett number we were doing on Connected, which mm-hmm. was, you know, just a bit of silliness. But I mean, that was Kate in the chat room suggesting that it go into Peacock. But, you know, I have form for doing that kind of thing, you know, like adding the thing for Mike. And I think it, it's partially imposter syndrome, but there is that kind of, am I more than just the gimmicks? Am I more than the 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 silliness? And I think I am. But then the little voice at the back of my head says, nah, the only people, the only reason people have heard of you is because, you know, you're flinging virtual bananas around in a, in a 3D environment or, or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, it, it, it's, I think the, the uh, basic idea of having a little bit of whimsy inside software and having your personality come through in software is definitely it's a lesson like i talked about jeff minter the games developer and his games you can recognize one of his games you know even from the commodore 64 to a playstation 4 you look at it you know it's him that's written it and that kind of thing i think is a something that a lot of software doesn't have you know uh stuff can be very sort of similar yeah i I think you're too hard on yourself james (laughs) you made a really great app and you're having fun with it too there's nothing wrong with that given that i've been doing this for yeah well 20 years officially as a as an well actually more than that because like my company was founded in 97 but i've been doing this full time for 20 years now Mm -hmm. i must be doing something right yeah but yeah that there is still a voice that says Nah, this is the year that you're going to be found out. I I get that. (laughs) I get that. (laughs) This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by OneBlocker. We all know that trackers and annoying pop-ups are a big problem on a whole bunch of websites. To take back control over your privacy and to get a better browsing experience, you need OneBlocker. It is a Safari content blocker for both macOS and iOS. It's secure, easy to use, and efficient at blocking stuff you don't want to see. OneBlocker comes with a curated built-in filter set containing over 160,000 rules. 
it lets you block things like intrusive ads, trackers, and other annoying elements on sites, such as cookie notices, comments, social network share buttons, adult sites, and more. And it's not just about blocking ads. One blocker can serve as a parental control or productivity tool. It's easy to use. You just flip a couple of switches and you're all set. The app will automatically receive cloud updates to the built-in filter silently so you don't have to do anything to keep it up to date. You just set it and forget it. It's a fully native app designed to extend Safari naturally, so it doesn't drain your battery by taking up your device's resources. I've used one blocker since it first came out to have it on all of my Apple devices, and I really don't want to browse the web without it. It's available on Mac and iOS, so if you want to protect yourself from online ads and trackers, get websites open faster, and improve your browsing experience, head to oneblocker.com or search one blocker. That's the digit one blocker, all one word, in the App Store. Our thanks to One Blocker for their support of MPU. You just touched on it before the break, but one thing that always really makes me respect PCALC and your work is the is the longevity. I, I was just thinking as we were preparing the different transitions you've had to go through with PCALC, right? Multiple processor changes, classic Mac OS to OS X, the iPhone, app stores, the iPad, all catalyst, all of this stuff. And I wonder how you approach these changes as they are on their horizon, how you think about them, and what are some of your goals when Apple throws everyone a curveball? I mean, there, there was a quite a while where Apple would come stand up at WWDC and say, this is the future. And then the next year, it wasn't the future. You know, sure. we had we had uh, Copeland that we talked about. There was things like QuickDraw GX. There was uh, OpenDoc. There was um, Dylan. Uh, which was a programming language that mm-hmm. Apple came up with. And so th- there are things like that where, you know, I have a bit of a uh, a memory, like the, the little uh, devil on my shoulder that says, you know, D- don't listen to this, it's a trick. Um, but there's a lot of stuff where Apple, where you can see where Apple is going. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of this stuff, it's like you have to jump on board. Um, you know, when, when Apple is changing processor or Apple is bringing out a new, completely new device or doing all these things or moving to the App Store, like it's been pretty clear since at least the last 20 years that when Apple does something, you, you know, follow it. Some of the stuff was, has been easier than others. Um, I mean, like the the move to uh, from 68K to PowerPC was quite a big transition in my brain. Mm-hmm. but uh, PowerPC to Intel was not really that hard at all. Um, uh, and I, I would expect Intel to ARM is going to be like literally zero work for me because wow. most of my code already works on ARM. Like all the low-level stuff that would be the kind of stuff that's generally run into processor levels of uh, problems. You know, all that code is common between the the iOS and the, the Mac version at this point. So you know, it already runs. There's not going to be a problem. Uh, so technology changes are less problematic than the business model changes, really. Um, I mean, the App Store uh, has been, was like a seismic thing across software. You know, I think changed the entire software industry uh, completely. 
you know, back in the day, like Peacock, like Drag Thing was $30 and Peacock was $20. And when the App Store was coming, like the iOS App Store, it was pretty clear that like $20 was going to be quite a lot. So I, I like, I, you know, uh, swallowed my pride and I halved the price and I, I made Peacock uh, $10. And I thought, you know, well, this is practically giving the software away. Uh, and now we're at the other, you know, however many years later, and ten dollars is like the premium level, you know, uh, pricing and and uh, free within app purchase or maybe subscriptions or however whatever. People have tried many different monetization paths uh, across the last, you know, decade, and it's hard. It's really hard to to come up with a thing you know i'm still selling peacock at, uh, at ten dollars and that's seen as some kind of uh freak uh of of pricing these days uh it's done well for us and like i'm not going to change that and i will ride that as long as i can because that's you know it's paying for you know paying our bills at this point uh almost 100 percent but yeah that 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 stuff the the business stuff i mean remember software used to ship in boxes and like there would be sections in an apple store you know apple stores don't seem that uh recent a thing uh, or they sorry they do seem like a recent thing apple stores but there was a time when they they had you know multiple shelves worth of box software that people would buy and that's all gone uh and you know the app store is is entirely responsible for that yeah, it does seem like um, you know the industry has really been turned on its head throughout your career, but you've managed to keep it going, and and all with the calculator app. That to me, that's the part that's so so impressive. You talked about transitions. Do you think? I mean, there's a lot of speculation that we're going to get an ARM Mac and an ARM processor based Mac here, maybe next month, but um, or at least an announcement of one next month, but maybe in a year. Um, having gone through so many transitions in the past, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I, it doesn't frighten me at all. Um, I think, like back in the day when we were having processor transitions, like even the uh, PowerPC to Intel transition, there was a lot more code that would be more low-level, sort of hand-tuned assembly type stuff. And now, even with games and stuff, things are written more high-level. So it's easier to port things there's less uh architecture specific stuff i mean there's still going to be um some software which is like that you know anything that's very performance heavy um you can see that kind of thing but you know nowadays stuff runs on gpus and there's not so much of the hand-tuned assembly doing things um so I don't think you're going to notice. Like for the average person on the street, what they might notice is if Apple doesn't ship some kind of uh, uh, Intel emulator on the devices and uh, they just don't have the software because that's going to be a problem. Uh, you know, because Apple, they did the the 68K emulator and they did the Power, PowerPC emulator. So they've got form for doing that kind of thing and, and allowing old software to work. And if they do that, you know, no, nobody's going to notice. Uh, it's going to take a while for things like Photoshop to appear. I mean, what will happen is Photoshop will be demoed 
on the you know when they do the keynote they announce it they'll say and here we have so and so from adobe who's going to show off photoshop we gave them access to the sdk three days ago and they've already got it running that is that kind of story that you'll see and then photoshop will actually ship a year later Um, (laughs) but (laughs) i think for for developers like me it's not going to be a problem and i don't see you know i've seen so many processor transitions I don't have a particular allegiance to any kind of uh, any architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's been nice having Intel because you know you can run Windows and you can you know you can have uh, things like that. So you you can have an overlap with with PCs. And I think for games that's still going to be important. But you know, if your main game gaming machine is a Mac, then you're already uh, having problems uh, getting games these days. So I suspect, yes, if I had to guess, I would say for most apps, you're not going to notice the difference. You're going to get fewer games, um, probably, or fewer big games. But And it's going to inconvenience a very small amount of people who uh, run virtual machines, and Apple is not going to care. What about um, like legacy software? You always lose some software whenever you make this transition. Do you think it's going to be a big hit to software developers, or is this something where it's going to be fairly simple to get transitioned over? I guess you've already answered that. I think like the 64-bit or the or the, the loss of 32-bit is probably going to be a bigger hit. Sure. Because anything that survived the 32-bit apocalypse is <laughs> yeah, that makes know, sense. probably has had some work done to it and is in a reasonable state that it can be recompiled for new mm-hmm. systems. Stuff that, you know, it's rare. I mean, it's not impossible. I've got some apps that are, you know, 64-bit, but are still, you know, like haven't been updated in six or seven years or something like that. Um, And I expect that they, if Apple does do some kind of emulation, they'll continue to work just fine. You know, the processors will get faster and the emulators will work. And then it's going to be, it's not going to be when the machines come out, it's going to be like four or five years down the line when Apple says, right, we're going to stop doing this. uh, backward compatibility environment and that's when stuff will die uh, i mean it's possible that apple will turn around and will say you know we're we're not doing that and developers just need to support it and you know anything that's submitted to the app store has to be uh compiled for both but if i had to put money on it i would say that they they won't do it that way i liked what you said about having gone through several of these transitions i remember when intel was rumored People are like, oh, it's not going to feel like a Mac. And I always thought that was silly. It's like, yeah, it's going to feel way better because it's going to be way faster. And they've got to prove that this time, right? Especially on the high end, like your iMac Pro and and my Mac Pro. But I think especially in the portable world, which are the vast majority of Macs sold anyways, it's going to be nice because you're going to have machines that hopefully run longer, better battery life. They run cooler. And I think there's going to be a lot of good from this transition. I remember being excited by the Intel transition as well. I mean, we got the the developer transition kit machines, which were basically a G5 case. And if you opened it up, there was this tiny little circuit board mm-hmm. in it, which was the entire Intel PC. Yeah. I wrote a thing on Mac Stories about that. I'll put it in the show notes. If you haven't seen this thing, it is bananas. The first thing I did with that machine when it arrived was I installed Windows and I played Half-Life 2 on it. <laughs> okay. But uh, 
that we had that machine for a long time and then uh, apple wanted them back because it was just a loan and then they very nicely sent us uh, sent all the developers who had one the the first intel imax uh as a freebie and that was great and my mother was using that machine f- until fairly recently and you know it would be nice if we get a developer transition machine but you know there's been lots of speculation whether or we just uh, install something onto uh, an iPad. You know, if you've got an iPad Pro with a uh, trackpad and a keyboard, and you know, maybe that's something that Apple can just say, you know, download this this firmware update, this uh, software, and hey, presto, you've got uh, an ARM Mac, and they don't need to ship hardware out to people. You know, if that happens, people are going to go nuts because everybody's going to want to, or some people are going to want to turn their iPads into Macs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I would love if it was something that could dual boot, or you know, you run uh, like a, a little macOS app uh, in inside the iOS or or something like that. I mean, who knows? Uh, I, the thing, like, uh, we're talking about transitions. It's like when I was at Apple in like this must have been like sort of ninety eight or something. I saw macOS ten running on Intel. You know, in some engineer's office who who was like their job was to make sure that everything built for multiple processors and, you know, just keep the builds running. And we had to fix bugs in the finder because, you know, we would have some problem on an Intel uh, machine. And that was in 98 and they didn't ship until, was it 2006, something like that? Uh, Yeah. January 07 was the, wait, no. Yeah. 06, January 06, because it was the MacBook Pro and the iMac a year before the iPhone was announced. So you've got like eight years that mm-hmm. in the labs, uh, macOS was running on, on this processor architecture. That you know is inconceivable to imagine that um, uh, macOS ten hasn't been running on ARM for like four or five years. Oh yeah, probably way longer. Yeah, Apple um, likes to have those uh, backup plans well understood before they need them. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, as at even at the point where they started doing their own uh, ARM chips. People have, there are very clever people inside Apple who are working out all these strategies. And they're like, well, let's just keep this one in our back pocket. Also, mm-hmm. it's a good uh, leverage factor on Intel and, sure. and things like that. So, yeah, I think, you know, they could do a, a, like a, a drop a, an, an ARM version, you know, day one of WWDC. I think that's entirely possible, but maybe it's next year. Maybe... Who knows what plans have been thrown into uh, chaos over the you know the last three months or whatever? And I guess we're going to find out in a in a month, less than a month. Mm-hmm. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by DevonThink. Get organized and unleash your creativity. Use the link in our show notes for ten percent off. We talk about DevonThink a lot on the show. It's the flagship product from Devon Technologies. DevonThink is a professional document and information management application for the Mac, and it helps you collect, file, organize, edit, and annotate all kinds of documents so you can reach digital organizational heaven. With DevonThink, you can archive all your emails with the enhanced email archiver and scan your paper documents with the revised scanner interface. You can even imprint PDFs with custom stamps and watermarks before giving them to others. Then organize your documents in any way you want. There are smart groups that let you create different views of your data, integrated artificial intelligence to assist you with filing and searching, 
create smart rules, and add flexible reminders to any document. The DevonThink automation tools are really powerful, and even non-programmers can easily automate many parts of the workflow, so you can delegate the boring, repeating tasks to DevonThink. And finally, sync your data securely between your devices, using your preferred web storage or even directly on the local network. And then you can take your data with you with DevonThink's iOS companion app, DevonThink to go. Now you can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it right now. Just go to devontechnologies.com slash MPU. That's devontechnologies.com slash MPU for 10% off. Our thanks to Devon Technologies for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So James, um, having been on the Mac since the beginning, why don't you tell us some of your favorite apps and services that you use? Well, well, I mean, one of the apps that I've used almost as long as I've used a Mac is BB Edit. BB Edit is a, a, I think you could call it a veteran text editor that's been around since before I was programming. Rich Siegel, who I'm somehow friends with, um, who's the one of the the main uh, writers of BB Edit, uh, he worked on Think Pascal, which was the first development environment I used. Um, and I use BB Edit for basically stunt text editing. Anytime I have to do some very complicated uh, search and replace across multiple files and multiple things, um, I always uh, go for BB Edit. Photoshop, uh, I've used that for a similar time frame. I mean, it's been around, I think, at least uh, early 90s as well. And I use that for UI design and doing all the graphics. Um, now I use Illustrator a lot as well for doing vector stuff. So, so that's where we got the golden banana, is what you're telling me. Well, um, the golden banana was actually rendered inside SceneKit. Um, but anyway, Xcode, people complain a lot about Xcode, but I really like it. It does a lot of stuff. I mean, it's got a full 3D editor in it. It's got tons of stuff. And, you know, it has problems and it's sometimes more stable than other times because, uh, you know, it's in constant evolution. But, uh, you know, I, it's the app that I spend most of my time in. Blender is an app that I've used for doing any of the 3D modeling stuff. It's a free app and it's a great, it's, the user interface is not particularly Mac-like and it's changed dramatically recently, but it's it's free and there's a lot of uh, tutorials and things out there if you're looking to get into 3D uh, stuff. I talked about emulation and uh, Basilisk 2 and Sheepshaver are two uh, apps that I've used for emulating uh, 68K and PowerPC Max. Uh, I've I talked about that I've done these talks and it's useful to be able to go back and see what my environment was like, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I've got actually full development environment set up so I can build, you know, like pcalc 1.0 and 2.0 from source currently. And, it, you know, it's good to, you can go back and you can run all this old code, see what things were like and take videos for talks. Um, useful for historical stuff, as Stephen, I'm sure, will appreciate. Mm -hmm. VMware Fusion is useful for emulating more recent systems if you want to have like an old version of macOS uh, running on a on a modern system or a PC. And the other thing that I use a lot, uh, Logic Pro X for uh, audio editing and music stuff. You know, I said I had all these synthesizers and, you know, sadly sold them off, but, you know, you don't need hardware synthesizers anymore. You can even get emulators inside Logic for emulating things like my old Juno 106. And yeah, that, that, that's a lot of, that's the sort of big stuff that I use. There's even a lot of emulators on iPad. I don't know if you've played with any of those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, that's like 
um, besides reading comics and watching videos and things, and ma- one of the main things that I have spent money on on the iPad is spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on music apps because yeah, you get Korg and people like that have done uh, a lot of really nice uh, apps, and you you know you can plug them into full size keyboards and things, and it's like yeah, all, all these thousands of pounds dollars worth of synthesizers can be uh, reproduced by a small ipad or a phone i know it's crazy <laughs> and and they even like mirror the logic of them like you can make connections and it it yeah it is yeah. just crazy i mean the, the things that i used to drool in the music store over that were way beyond my budget are now like five dollars on the iPad. yeah you, you can get like the the fairlight uh sampler synthesizers which you know if you've ever listened to something like art of noise or, or, or those bands from the, the 80s you know you can get virtual versions of those uh synthesizers with those sounds and play around with them it's great fun but you're not just into apple hardware are you uh so i i wrote this down uh I, I added a, a section into our show notes, uh, which was my favorite piece of non-Apple hardware. Uh, and currently, this is a thing called the Mister. And the Mister is an open-source FPGA-based hardware emulation of old consoles and computers. And to break that down, it's basically an FPGA is a, it's a processor which you can in hardware, tell it to be another processor or a group of processors or things. So you can take what would be the the design schematic for a processor effectively and load it into this thing and say, you know, you're now a 68,000 processor or you're now this. And so what people have done is they've taken this reference platform, which is a thing a bit like a Raspberry Pi, but it has an FPGA on it. And it's not horrendously expensive. You know, it's it's like a hundred and something dollars. And then they've built all these boards that connect to it. And they have created this thing, which is can run like a Super, it can be a Super Nintendo, or it can be an Apple II, or it can be a Macintosh, or it can be you know Commodore sixty four. It can be any of these things uh, connected to your television, and you can plug. You can get boards that will add USB ports, so you can plug in a keyboard and mouse, or you can you know have HDMI out, or you can have a board that does VGA or analog out, or you can have things that let you plug in game controllers from you know like a Super Nintendo controller directly into it. I don't want to say, you know, it's a perfect recreation because it's still at some level, it's emulation, but it's emulation done in a different way. And, you know, you're, you can build, you know, if, if you're trying to simulate, say, you know, like a Super Nintendo, you can have, well, here's the sound chip, here's the CPU, here's this thing, and we'll plug them together and they will work much closer to the real thing than... Uh, the software emulators that you you might come across and much more better performance and much more accurate uh to like back in back in the days of like commodore 64 things where you would get these uh amazing demo programs that were written by uh way smarter programmers than me that everything was down to this cycle individual cycle of the cpu uh all the timings and things to make it work and that's where this kind of emulation really pays off 
it will do a wide range of things, mostly sort of 8-bit and 16-bit era uh, consoles and computers. But it's got a, a really fascinating sort of homebrew scene around it. And, uh, you know, you start the thing up and uh, download the latest cores that have been developed by people and somebody's like added support for, you know, oh, there's a now a TurboGrafx-16 CD uh drives and and things like that and it it's it's a very hobbyist thing and you know you're basically you're sourcing all these boards from around the world and ram chips of a certain caliber and you're putting it together and hoping it works and for somebody who like generally buys a macintosh and like is it comes sealed and i don't really touch what's inside it you know it's quite nice to actually put something together at a hardware level and you can do it at the level of you know actually make the boards themselves because they're you know all the schematics are released for things so you can go in at whatever level you want and it's worth an explore and play with if you you're if you're into sort of playing with old computers and seeing how they worked there is something satisfying about getting your hands on the hardware you know we started the show and i talked about how i am I doubled the RAM in my Atari by opening up and, and soldering on RAM ch- chips. I don't think you'd do that with your iMac Pro. Mm-mm. No. Um, Please don't. I think- <laughs> Steven might. I don't know. <laughs> you could take that thing apart. But yeah, most people shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, most stories I hear of people we know taking things apart, they generally end badly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like modern Macs, you open them up and there's like a popping sound, like it just unwound a spring and you are never going to rewind it. <laughs> I, I think it's like cars. I think there's a certain amount of, you know, cars these days. I'm not I'm not one of those car people, but I get the impression that, you know, a modern car is more like a you know, more like an iPhone than it is like a, a an old Mac. Yeah. Well, James, uh, we uh, love PCALC. Uh, we're both users of it on my home screen, so that's a big it's very testament. nice to hear. The uh, and and I love the forty-two and the icon as someone who grew up on, you know, reading Douglas Adams. And in fact, you have a story about him too. We're going to save save that for the next time you're on the show. But the um, you know, thank you so much for for bringing Peacock to us and all the goofy stuff you do is really fun and I do like seeing that. But I also just love that you've made such a solid app. Well, uh, thank you, and you know, it's it's very nice to to be on here and uh, you know to to get the respect that I'm I'm, I'm finally deserve. You know, I yes, exactly, and, and all that, <laughs> exactly. Gang, if you want to find James, where where should people go? So if you want to talk to me, Twitter is uh, sadly the best way. Uh, I'm James Thompson on Twitter. That's Thompson without a P. Um, if you want to find out about PCALC or any of that stuff, uh, PCALC.com. Uh, this is the advantage of starting so early is that I can have, you know, like a, a, a five uh, character domain name. Um, but uh, also TLA.Systems is uh, our company thing but yeah find me on twitter that's generally the easiest way yeah and check out um in the app store uh pcalc it's and basically every app store mac app store iphone app store apple tv app store we didn't talk about that you made an apple tv calculator but just just go with us there um and uh and also um 
I forget what's the name of the dice game again. It's Dice by Peacock because dice I, by Peacock, I was course. trying to come up with a name that hadn't been taken and there weren't any. So I just did the Apple way and added my uh, brand onto the name and hit, there you go. Hey, it works. Totally works. There's something about the four-sided dice. I can't stop rolling it. Uh, I had the same problem when I was a kid and I had a physical four-sided dice. It's just a fascinating bit of engineering there. But the... Um, uh, anyway, go check that out. And um, the Photos Field Guide Gang, uh, the introductory price is going away very shortly after the show publishes. If you want to get that, head over to learn.maxsparky.com. And thanks to our sponsors, and that's our friends over at SaneBox, OneBlocker, and Devon Technologies. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>